Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Supreme Court has, just as we record, dismantled affirmative action in college admissions, part of a concerted right-wing campaign to sabotage multiracial democracy. We will certainly talk about that going forward. The U.S. public's belief in and support for the Supreme Court has plummeted with the appointment of hyper-partisan justices whose unwillingness to answer basic questions or answer them respectfully would make them unqualified to work at many a Wendy's, and the obviously outcome-determinative nature of their jurisprudence. Key to that drop in public support was last year's Dobbs ruling, overturning something Americans overwhelmingly support and had come to see as a fundamental right, that of people to make their own decisions about when or whether to carry a pregnancy or to have a child. The impacts of that ruling are still reverberating, as is the organized pushback that we can learn about and support. We'll hear from Taryn Abbasian, Associate Research Director at NARAL. Also on the show, meaningful, lasting response to the Dobbs ruling requires more than vote blue no matter who, but actually understanding and addressing the differences and disparities of abortion rights and access before Dobbs, which requires an expansive understanding of reproductive justice. Counterspin has listened many times over the years to advocates and authors working on the issue. We'll hear a little today from Fair's Julie Holler, from Kimberly Inez McGuire, Executive Director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, and from URGE's Policy Director, Preston Mitchum. That's coming up this week on Counterspin brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It's been a year since the Supreme Court overturned federal abortion protections, and the avalanche of consequences is still growing. They include, of course, restricting people's access to abortion. Some 20 states have passed either bans or very restrictive policies, but also hampering the ability to access a range of pregnancy-related and general health care. One professor of health law was quoted saying, it's like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb into public health. The ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was anticipated But that doesn't necessarily mean we were ready. So what have folks been doing and what needs to be done to address its devastating effects? And what role can media play? We're joined now by Taryn Abbasian, Associate Research Director at NARAL. Welcome to Counterspin, Taryn Abbasian. Thank you so much for having me. Well, most people will have a general sense, but as always, things look different depending where you are and who you are. So if you're trying to explain the impacts of the Dobbs ruling, expected, unexpected, where, where do you even start? I mean, as you sort of alluded to, a lot of this isn't unexpected. We, we anticipated this happening. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the things um, we were worried about, we, we are seeing play out. You sort of mentioned that 20 states have already eliminated restrictive access to abortion. 
folks are being forced to travel hundreds of miles in some cases when they're pushed completely out of their reach in their states. And there's just all kinds of instances in the news that we're hearing about horrific situations that folks who are trying to access care are having to experience. And again, it's just, like you said, not it was not a surprise, but we are sort of facing the realities of that every day and, and countless stories about how pregnant people are being denied abortion access and being denied life-saving care in the case of sort of miscarriages and all sorts of medical complications. And it is, it's devastating, but we, as always, at NARAL are working really hard to push back and do what we can in the wake um, of the decision. And, and we've just had the one-year anniversary, and we haven't stopped working since that decision was handed down last year, both in the states, um, at the federal level, and, and just doing what we can, organizing and trying to get folks tuned in and working together to to hold the line and, and protect the access we can and expand it in the places where we can expand it. So people are changing decisions about where they're going to live, you know, about where they're going to go to college or where they're going to practice medicine. I'm not sure that everyone really understood how deep and wide this was going to be. Yes, of course. We just saw some polling recently that tons of young people, and we, and we know young people are with us more than ever, and, and young people are sort of our strongest cohort of support. And they're making these sort of big decisions about where they're going to live, where they're going to study, where they're going to take their lives as adults. And they're having to think about these things that a generation ago they weren't having to think about. And and it's very disappointing, but it also, again, as you mentioned, it's sort of a bright spot. They're they're making these considerations. Young folks are tuned in. They're paying attention to this. They know about the impact that that's having on their lives, and, and they're sort of deciding accordingly. We obviously wish they weren't having to have these sort of forced choices and difficult decisions around just access to basic medical care, but we know folks are engaged and and are doing what they can to sort of mitigate the effects of of the decision last year. Well, we know that a right is meaningless if you can't exercise it, which Mm -hmm. is why we've always distinguished between the right to abortion and abortion access. And we know that there were problems even before Dobbs. You know, people in public assistance, for example, Roe was not meaningful to them. So lifting up those disparities, including racial disparities, geographic, economic, it seems more important now than ever. Yes. And again, I think abortion gets put in this this hole of being a very political issue, and it's politicized unlike any kind of other medical care. And what we like to talk about at NARAL and focus on in our work is that we want to talk about the people. We want to talk about the human beings that are being affected by this lack of access. We want to center the folks that are most impacted women of color and low-income women and folks that already have a hard time accessing care are the ones that are going to be disproportionately affected by this. And we want to center those voices and center those sort of stories as we try to kind of push back and what's happening and the harm that this decision is causing day in and day out. Well, I want to talk about responsive federal policy, but let me just draw you out a little bit about the state level. What What's happening there? I saw a quote from a nurse practitioner in Pennsylvania who said, there's always a temptation to go somewhere that's going to be idyllic, you know, (laughs) idyllic, but you know, Pennsylvania needs people like us who care enough to stay here and fight. And there is pushback at the state level, isn't there? Of course. And I think we saw that kind of right out the gate after the Dobbs decision, we saw in Kansas, an overwhelming show of support for abortion access, abortion rights, reproductive freedom. And we're seeing that even though there's a lot of states right now moving to restrict or eliminate access, there are a lot of states that are doing a lot of great proactive work to try to make sure abortion access and reproductive freedom is accessible to folks. And so what we've seen over and over again in red states and purple states and obviously in blue 
state that when voters are asked directly about abortion, how they feel about it, what they want to do in terms of protecting it, overwhelmingly huge majorities vote in favor of abortion access and reproductive freedom. We see that every time, almost every battle we've had since the decision when we've asked voters directly about where they stand on abortion, it's in favor of more access, broader freedom. So unfortunately, our opposition knows this, and we see in a lot of places where we're seeing ballot initiative thresholds changing and things like that. They, they know that even when voters are being asked to sort of give their, their input and their voice their opinions about abortion, they know it's popular. And so instead of just allowing the will of the voters to stand, a lot of folks are sort of pushing to change rules in some of these states, and we're fighting back and fighting against those changes as well. So it's a lot of battles happening in a lot of different states, but we've seen time and time again when you put it to the voters, when you ask folks whether they want to protect reproductive freedom, they resoundingly say yes. And and have for, for decades, I mean, have yes. for many years. Well, that leads to the next question. Do we need a federal response, or what role could that play vis-a-vis state policy? I mean, certainly federal response would be great. We have great allies in President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. We endorsed them just last week, and they've been a huge ally to us and real fighters for reproductive freedom. Of course, we'd love to see some sort of federal protection and codification of Roe, and we really need a pro- reproductive freedom Congress to do that. And so, again, a lot of the work we do is in organizing, it's in getting out the vote, it's in motivating young people and talking to folks about the stakes so that they know how important it is and that their votes make a difference when it comes to this stuff. So certainly federal protections would be great. We've already seen Republicans in the GOP, though they claim that that they would leave this to be a state issue, they're already working to sort of put in place federal bans and talking about that and using that as kind of a litmus test for their 2024 candidates. So Certainly that would be ideal, and we need to sort of put in the work to build the Congress and that can deliver that, because that ultimately is to make sure that it's not going to be dependent on what state you live in or what state you're nearby to be able to access care. We want folks around the country to have the the medical care that they need. Absolutely. The GOP is using kind of all the tools at their disposal, and we need to do the same. That brings me to the question about media, because I think... Reporting sometimes gives us a picture of like a divided country. You know, the mm-hmm. New York Times last year said Dobbs was um, plunging the country back into the contentious debate over abortion. But as as you've just said, it's not like half the country supports abortion rights and half opposes it. But media sometimes get into this kind of both sizing. And I, mm-hmm. and I wonder what you think would be, you talked about centering human beings, which I think is the key, but are there other things or thoughts that you have about what media could stop doing or could start doing? Yeah. As you sort of alluded to, the media plays a really fundamental role in this discussion about abortion care. And, and we're thrilled that more folks than ever are talking about it and engaging in this since the top decision. But as you said, it's not a 50-50 issue. I think unlike any other part of, of healthcare or medical care, it's presented as this political, divisive, 50-50 issue when we know it's not the case. And we know over and over again, based on public research and polling and our own internal research, that the majority is with us. Eight in 10 Americans consistently show that they are supportive of reproductive freedom and abortion access. And we know this, and the anti-abortion movement can say whatever they want about the support that they have or that the fact that this is a really uh, divisive issue, but we know it's not. We don't want the coverage being driven by the politicians and the talking points of this side and that side. Divisiveness is about the people that are being impacted by this. And, and ultimately, we want to remind people that this is 
a healthcare issue, it's a medical issue. Folks should be free no matter where they live to make these really important decisions about pregnancy and about parenthood and all sorts of things with their loved ones and with their doctors. It should not be this political battle where politicians get to weigh in on it, especially given how we, we see over and over again that it's unpopular. Folks don't want politicians making those decisions. And I'll just say, finally, I was talking to Jessica mason Peekler last July about Dobbs, and she was saying it's a different kind of ruling up in terms of reproductive rights, that it's more outcome determinative. And so it requires a different kind of approach in a way, that it needs really a full force fight. It's not necessarily, obviously, legal issues are important, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we recognize something bigger happening here. Yeah, of course. And again, like you said, the media plays a huge role. We, of course, love that there's a lot of discussion around this issue and there's sort of more chatter about it than ever before. But we also know that some of this charged rhetoric is not helpful. And what it really comes down to is that the voices of people being affected are what's important and not the opinions of politicians who are trying to sort of divide us on this topic. All right, then. We've been speaking with Taryn Abbasian, Associate Research Director at NARAL. Their work is online at ProChoiceAmerica.org. Taryn Abbasian, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. The overturn of Roe versus Wade was expected. Here's a bit of our conversation with veteran reporter Jessica Mason-Peaklow from Rewire News Group, July of last year. In the legal movement, both the conservative and progressive legal movements prior to the Dobbs decision, really since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there were in the courts a more honest debate over what the state could or could not do in terms of regulating pregnancy and childbirth and those outcomes. And that was under the Planned Parenthood versus Casey framework. That was the great abortion compromise that the Supreme Court came up with as a way to save Roe and sort of settle this debate, so to speak, for the ages. And what happened as a result of the political campaign to take over the courts and to really move this issue away from the will of the people and into a a minoritarian space is that the Dobbs decision is a perfect reflection of that. It cherry picks history. It cherry picks the law. And it really just comes to a conclusion that was predeterminative by Sam Alito and the other conservative justices on the court. And I think that's the one thing that I that I really hope folks understand that is really different with this iteration of the Roberts Court and what we will see amplified moving forward is that for the conservative legal movement, it is outcome determinative. So it doesn't matter what the law says. They will find the outcome that they are looking for and work the law backwards to make it fit. Well, that seems seismic and something that we would hope that journalism would recognize and not simply try to stuff this new reality into an old framework. And I wonder what you as a reporter make of the way, and I know it's all in media's rest, you know, they're trying to figure it out as we all are, but what do you make of the way media are addressing what you're saying is this is not the same. We have to address yeah. this differently. Are media rising to that challenge? 
I, you know, there are fits and starts. I think yeah. that along with the, you know, general public, there is an understanding within more mainstream and beltway media that the institutions are failing no. in this moment. Whether it's the political leadership, whether it's our institutions like the Supreme Court, they are failing. And our entire democratic experiment in this country is at risk right now. And my concern is that that realization is starting to dawn a little too late for folks who really have the ability to do something about it. But I do remain hopeful that folks are seeing the moment for what it is. I think the shift that we saw in some of the conversation around the court when the Dobbs opinion was leaked in May and then, you know, the follow-up opinion actually being released and not changing substantively at all. I mean, I think that's been really interesting to see is how, you know, the leak happened and then the final opinion came out and there weren't really any changes. Even some of the most, like, egregious parts of the opinion that media latched onto about a, you know, steady sub- domestic supply of infants, for example, that's still in the final opinion. Right. Right? So I think as the dust settles and truly how extreme the reality is, I I do think they're starting to latch onto it. I worry, though, that media has ingrained habits. And that is one of the areas where in three months from the Dobbs decision and in six months from the Dobbs decision, I'm concerned that journalists who don't cover this issue and the Supreme Court on the regular will fall back into habits that they know just because that's what we all do as humans, right? We just sort of fall into our old habits. I'm concerned that we'll see that in the media as well and a return to treating abortion as a political issue to be resolved in state houses and in Congress as opposed to a human rights crisis that is unfolding in this country right now. In May 2022, Counterspin spoke with FAIR senior analyst and managing editor Julie Holler in the wake of the advance leak of the Dobbs ruling, when elite media were evincing some strange priorities about the impact of this monumental change. I think you have to ask, what's the priority here for the corporate media in their coverage? And if you look, you know, the day that this leak happens, it's Obviously, front page news, it's at the top of the nightly newscasts. And yes, they talk about what's the impact going to be for people in this country. But the priority here, the top of the show, the first story that they tell is, you know, about the leak itself, who might have done this, what is the impact on the Supreme Court, the relationships between the justices and their clerks. That's story number one. And then story number two asks, you know, what are the consequences for others? But even there, when you watch the nightly newscasts, it wasn't exactly what's the impact on people who might get pregnant. It's what is the impact on the clinics who serve them? What is the impact on the pro-choice and the anti-choice movements? Um, I didn't see the, the people themselves who would be most impacted getting interviewed on these shows. So I think... Yes, there is some coverage of that impact. It is downplayed and it is sandwiched in between all of these other stories that are distracting attention from what is really the heart of what's going on here. 
Well, and then even a finding within a finding, I thought it was interesting in the piece that you wrote about the initial coverage of this leaked ruling, that one place when the question was asked, what's going to happen to, they said, to the women, many of them low income, who every year get abortions in states like Mississippi, Texas, places like that. The one time that was asked, it was asked of the leader of an anti-choice group. Exactly. Who gave a very reassuring answer. Oh, we will step up our efforts to take care of those people and make sure the outcomes are good. Well, you know what? That's not a satisfactory answer because that's not what's going to happen. You know, there could be some stepping up. And what's really going to happen is all of the research has shown that there will be more people dying. There will be greater poverty. There will be worse health outcomes all across the board for people. Well, I think that we have seen news media acknowledging that an overturning of Roe versus Wade will launch myriad other efforts at the state level. They talk about these trigger bills. But at the same time, these things didn't come out of nowhere. They've been building for years. And when you looked last year at coverage of these state campaigns, it seemed like media were not acknowledging them appropriately as they were brewing. Not at all. Not at all. The first four and a half months of last year, there were hundreds of state-level restrictions introduced in state legislatures. Many of them passed, and the national media just simply ignored them for the, for the most part. You got a few mentions here or there, very short, nothing in depth, um, nothing at all that gave a sense of the scale of what was going on. And it's not just last year. I, I feel like I've been writing this article since I started at FAIR, which was quite some time ago. I wrote this article 10 years ago when the right was ramping up state-level campaigns and laws to restrict abortion access. And we saw a sharp drop-off in national media coverage of abortion exactly when these things are happening. So the media will pay attention when there's a huge blockbuster story like the Supreme Court leak. Um, But during the the steady drip drip of what's been happening for years, for decades, they've been just completely missing. In January 2021, Counterspin heard from Kimberly Inez McGuire, executive director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. And framing is powerful, which is why I appreciate the way that you and URGE and others describe legal abortion as the floor, not the ceiling, as part of that expansive understanding of reproductive justice. Can you talk a little bit about how we talk about abortion and why it matters? What are you trying to do with that floor, not the ceiling phrase? Absolutely. So I think there's a few key pieces here. One is about how we show respect to people who have had abortions. And first and foremost, those who have had abortions deserve the dignity of recognition. We need to use the word abortion. We need to talk about abortion as necessary health care and as a social good. Anything less, honestly, disregards and disrespects the one in four women in this country who have sought out this health care. So that's the first piece is, is just saying the word abortion, it's not a bad word. It's a you know, word that's saved people's lives and helped shape better futures. The other piece around the floor, not the ceiling, is for 
people with economic resources, what is a legal right on paper has so much more meaning than for people who are blocked because of economic barriers, because of racial barriers. So we look at something like abortion access, even before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal across you know, large swaths of the country, the reality is that women of means have always been able to get abortions. That has always been the reality for people with money. The vision for reproductive justice is not just, you know, you have a theoretical right to abortion if you can fight your way through all of the muck and the the restrictions, but reproductive justice means that if you've decided to end a pregnancy, you can do so safely, with dignity, without upending your family's economic security, and without being subjected to, frankly, misogynist hate speech and stigma. And finally, in May of 2021, we followed up with Urge's policy director, Preston Mitchum. Here he's responding to my question about media coverage that presents abortion as a cultural issue, as though it were soft, as opposed to a serious issue like economics, though it's hard to imagine anything more central to economic life than the ability to decide whether to have a child. Exactly. And what it does is is it continues to drive a wedge that shouldn't be a wedge. You know, when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about life-saving treatment that people actually need. It's medical care. It's health care. And in many ways, all statistics show that abortion care is in many ways safer than giving birth. And so, you know, those are statistics and facts that many people, unfortunately, who are driving this quote-unquote culture war narrative don't want people to, to believe or understand, but it's true. And unfortunately, what it does, it undermines the necessary conversation we must have around reproductive health right, and justice, especially reproductive justice, right? So, of course, reproductive justice is more than abortion. It's, it's comprehensive. But we're talking about the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Abortion access is a critical part of maintaining reproductive justice for Black folks, for Indigenous folks, for Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, for Indigenous folks. And we must center it on the work where people can create a future for themselves, where every person can make their own decisions with dignity, with autonomy, and with self-determination. And you're absolutely right. When media coverage and narrative is about culture war, it creates this idea that only some people should have abortion access, that the people who do want abortion access are the people who are against what is actually the moralistic framing of this country. And it creates a divide of good and bad. Abortion is not about good or bad. Abortion is about access and creating the families and the communities that we want, that we can see, and that can thrive in the system that we have today. That was Jessica mason Piclo from Rewire, Preston Mitchum and Kimberly Inez McGuire from Urge, as well as FAIR's own Julie Holler. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.